money, deals, tribal knowledge, resources, training, coaching, partnering. We are Texas's largest real estate investor association at texasstarterkit.com. My name is Shanoa Grove. Welcome to the show. So the tip of the week tonight, uh, best practices for joint ventures, part one. Now, I w- thought about uh, uh, um, um, calling this something a little bit more um, uh, exciting, like, you know, how to really screw up a relationship with somebody, right? How to really screw up a partnership with someone. And um, as part of Texas Rias, I, I sometimes get uh, both the honor and the distinct uh, unprivileged, unhonor, I don't know, to unscramble everyone's eggs. So what that looks like is people will go out and do things that might not be the, the best thing to do in their business. And then they come to me and say, hey, Shanoa, can you, can you help us work through this, right? So actually today I spent more than a little time, uh, exactly two hours helping some investors unscramble an egg and it was all around a joint venture. So I'm curious just by raise of hands, uh, how many of you guys are considering maybe joint venturing with someone? I know some of you guys came here together. Uh, so, so, okay, okay. So joint venturing with spouse is, is one thing. So uh, my husband and I have been investing together for the last 19 uh, plus years. Uh, but joint venturing with someone that, you know, hey, you look good. I just met you. Let's go, let's go do some deals together. You know, it looks like we, you know, we got the same belt or the same shoes or we live in the same neighborhood. Well, that sounds like a great basis for a lifelong partnership. Yes, let's do this, right? Uh, so uh, I'll, I'll go through and, and I'm going to end up breaking this into part one and part two. So if you guys are ready to be, I don't, it's not, it's not like motive, unmotivated, but if you guys are ready to hear uh, the kind of truth behind some of the partnership interactions that I've seen uh, people mess up, then we're going to go through that to make sure you guys don't mess them up. So in fact, we're going to make it a two uh, part series as we go through this, uh, just because there's a lot. In fact, um, I I actually have like um, four slides worth of notes on how I've seen people screw up a joint venture. Um, So the first thing I want to make sure that you guys all do, and it sounds like the very, the very most basic thing. Uh, but you need to get everything in writing. And, I, and again, I know it sounds, it sounds basic, it sounds easy, but the implementation of that, as it turns out, is harder than I would have, I would have originally thought. Um, so what, is, what does this writing look like? Because you know, today, what some of the investors told me that I was talking with was, I'm gonna, I'll send you all of our text messages. Is that gonna do it? No. I'll send you all of our emails. Is that gonna do it? No, send me your LLC and send me your operating agreement because then I will know what I am dealing with. It's really that simple. What is it gonna say in the operating agreement? What are we gonna talk about in the operating agreement? Who's doing what? And guys, um, you know, it's funny, last week I uh, did uh, uh, rehabbing best practices. I did that in part one and part two and basically went, it was also very motivational. I went through all the mistakes that I've seen people make. Uh, so, so this, um, you know, I, I, wanna, I wanna be super clear about what I want you guys to have in your partnership agreement and what I want you guys to discuss as you are trying to figure out who's doing what. 
So it's not just about, I'm going to, you know, I, I, you know, I'm going to do this. You're going to do this. We're seeing eye to eye. After you see eye to eye, someone's going to go to sleep. Someone's going to forget. Someone's going to get busy. Someone, life's going to distract someone and it's, and it's not going to go as planned. And no one's going to remember all of the details when it comes, uh, several, uh, several, uh, uh weeks, months, or even, uh, years later. So want to make sure that if you are partnering with someone, uh, that, you know, uh, you know, the rules of the game before you get in. So, uh, agree on who does what in advance. So, uh, some, you know, who's going to be the one who's finding the deals? Who's the one who's going to be pulling the list for the marketing? Who's the one who's brave enough to go out and talk to the seller? Who's going to be the one who's putting stuff under contract? Who's going to be the one who is, is, is negotiating that contract, right? Who's going to be the one who's funding the deals? And if it's neither of you, what are you guys going to agree on when it comes to funding? Uh, who's going to be the one who works on getting it to closing? So some of you guys think, well, uh, I got it under contract, so it's all good from here. No, actually that's when the real work begins, right? Ask anyone who's ever taken a, a contract to title, ask anyone who's ever taken a contract to a lender, right? This is where the real work begins. And uh, a lot of times things come up, including uh, what do sellers uh, like to do uh, when, they, uh, when someone else comes to them and gives them an offer that's $5,000 higher than your offer? What do sellers like to do? Back out. What else do they like to do? How do they do it? Justin said it. They dodge you. Anyone in here dating right now? Anyone here in the dating game? Let me tell you, ghosting is not just for dating. Okay. It's also for real estate and real estate and investing, right? So a lot of times a motivated seller will get something that I lovingly refer to as seller amnesia, uh, for which there is no vaccine for that either. Uh, so, so, so what does that mean? That means when they, when someone else comes along and gives them a higher offer, a lot of times they will dodge you. They will ghost you. They will try to ignore you. It's kind of like, they will possum you, right? It's like, if I just go like this, if I don't answer the door, like, will they, will they know that I'm not, you know, like I'm going to try this for a while, see how this works out. And, and, and what will the real realtors in the room say? And the people who know the contract say, well, they can't do that. Is that true? Yes, they cannot do that. But what is also true? They do that all the time, all the time. Okay. So, so don't get offended by it. It's not just you. Okay. It's everybody. It happens to everybody. So somebody still has to work on getting it to closing. Somebody still has to work on keeping that relationship. Somebody still has to work on clearing the title insure, uh, the title issues. Now here's what we love as a real estate investor, a clean title that maybe just has a mortgage on it. Maybe doesn't have any mortgage on it. Right. But as real estate investors, what do some of our deals look like? What do some of the, the title commitments look like? And this is what the, uh, for those of you guys who are not familiar, let me just back this up. This is what the title company gives you that says uh, their section C is, is, is what we call it. These are the items that need to be cleared to close. Now, some of these title commitments read like a telenovela, right? I mean, it's like divorce, bankruptcy, you know, liens, judgments, the IRS, taxes due, you know, all this sort of stuff, right? So that's what we have to deal with as real estate investors. These are the things that we have to clear. Uh, we also have to, uh, as we get it under contract, as we get it to the closing line, then we got to make sure we get the right contractor. Then we have to make sure that we have a very detailed scope of work. And for those of you guys who watched uh, our YouTube video on Texas Rias uh, last week, I did a, a detailed presentation on creating that scope of work. And basically what I said is you need to get down to 
having the hinges on that scope of work. And that for every $10,000 that is it, that you are paying someone, you need to have at least a one-page written scope of work. So if you have a $100,000 um, renovation project, you should have at least 10 pages in terms of your scope of work. Just please know this, that if you do not, then something's going to bite you in the butt. You just don't know when it's going to happen. And it's going to cause a change order and it's going to probably cause some issue with your contractor. But you got to create that scope of work. You've got to hire the contractors. You've got to pay the contractors. What do you also need to get from a contractor to, to pay them? A W-9. Who is notorious for giving incorrect W-9s? Contractors. So uh, how do I, so let me, for those of you guys who are, who, um, who, um, are not self-employed or contractors or have never hired a contractor as part of your business, um, in order to write off the expense, you will ask your contractor to deliver you a W-9, which basically has their uh, name, address, their social security or their EIN number for their company. And this is what you will use and send to the uh, send to them and to the IRS as you create a 1099 uh, statement for them at the end of the year, which is basically this is what I paid you. So one goes to the person that you paid, one goes to the government. So inevitably, every single year, what do I get from the IRS? A letter that says the person that you paid, name, EIN, or social. Well, that name, EIN, and social does not happen to exist, okay? So you do have to be a little careful about uh, those issues as well. And when it comes to paying contractors, what do people always screw up? How many of you guys have heard, so I haven't been able to get any of you guys to answer your, raise your hands this entire not, night, but I'm sure I can get at least probably 25% of you to raise your hands when I ask this question which is how many of you guys have heard someone say, well, the contractor ran off with all of my money. It's okay. That's okay. It happens to everybody. Okay. It happens to everybody. Um, it happened to me over a thousand dollar water heater. That was a cheap lesson. That was a cheap lesson. Other people you'll hear have lessons that are 10,000, 20,000, 30,000, 40,000 and more. So who's got to be in the partnership? Who's in charge of making sure the contractor does what? What they said they were going to do. Who needs to make sure that the contractor does not get ahead of them on the payment schedule? Yeah, all of that needs to be decided and it needs to be, there's, there's something interesting about when people go into a real estate business that, you know, they think it's all like, oh, this is going to be easy. You know, I saw that show on HGTV. Like this is like, you know, I make every mistake. I still come out making money, right? Well, that's an environment where your housing prices are, you know, going up by $100,000 every single month, which was sometimes what happened when a lot of those HGTV sh shows were filmed, right? So even if, the con if they got messed up, then they would still make money. That's not how real life is, though, okay? That's not how, that's how, not how your life is going to be. So you have to uh, be sure and stay on uh, that contractor. You have to uh, create a scope of work that details when that work is going to be done and that payment schedule that's not just a draw every week you pay me $5,000 or $10,000 because that's going to get you guys messed up. And that's, do you think that might put a strain on the relationship if you're the one who's managing the contractor and then the contractor runs off with the money or you pay the contractor everything and the work's like only halfway done? Yeah, I would say that would make a big strain on that relationship, right? Uh, 
um, uh, change orders, right? So who's designing that scope of work? Did it include everything on it? Did it have uh, at least a one-page scope of work for every $10,000 that was budgeted, right? And if not, if there's a change order, who approves that? Do both partners have to approve that? Do both partners have to sign off on the checks, right? Uh, reselling the property decisions. What are we going to resell it for? Who gets to decide the price? Is this a group decision? Is this? Some of you guys are looking at me and saying, oh my gosh, this is a lot. Is she going to stop at some point? No. Uh, so please, guys, uh, 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 know these things are... are um, I know, I'm, I know this is probably not the most motivational speech you've ever been to uh, about real estate, but I want to assure you that this is a real life example, um, a real life example. Um, are you gonna, who's going to hire the realtor? What percentage are you going to pay the realtor? Uh, who's going to do the negotiations with your end buyer? Who's going to uh, work through the inspections and, and a possible renegotiation with the buyer? Who's going to say what's approved to be renegotiated in terms of price or in terms of repairs? Who's in charge of paying the lender, right? It's the last thing that you want is one of your partners, yeah, I got that, I'll, I'll handle all the books. If you're handling all the books and you don't know how to work an Excel spreadsheet or you don't know how to work QuickBooks or you don't have a Google Drive where you're sharing everything or Dropbox where you're, sh where you're sh sharing everything, why is that so hard to say? Uh, do you think that might be an issue? And the answer is yes, it's most certainly going to be an issue. So uh, have all that lined up in, in, in advance because the last thing, you know, some lenders will give you a loan. Some of the hard money lenders will give you a loan and just they're an asset-based lender. So uh, they're charging you typically 15% between two and five points. But some lenders will make you sign a what? A personal guarantee. Oh, oh. So if you, now, you, now your credit's on the line, right? And, and what does that look like if you have one person who's not doing their job, right? So this is why these things are so important. Uh, having weekly meetings, signature authority, who signs off on the sale of the property, uh, profit splits. This is what gets me, and I see this all the time with uh, real estate investors who become very quick partners and then their partnership dissolves right after the first property, right after the first project. And it basically looks like this. Well, I had to come in and save the project so therefore, what? I should be getting more of the profits. What do you think about that? Should they? How's that conversation gonna go? Yeah, I don't know. I'm, you know, For me, it's like when I partner with somebody, it's like, it'd be nice if you just didn't do anything and just watch from afar. Because <laughs> I don't know, I, I, I like to run things like it. You haven't noticed tonight. I like to run things like a, like a dictator. Don't get in the way of my dictatorship. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, and I don't care. Like, I'll pay you 50% all day long. I just, like, this just gives me half of a deal, right? I'll do all the rest because that was maybe my only shot on your deal to be able to get in. So I'm happy. But I have seen a lot of investors who try to renegotiate a deal, you know, three months into it, six months into it, or hold it hostage at the closing table. Oh, and then you get in a lot of stress with the buyer. Then you get in a lot of stress with your lender because the project's probably behind, right? Listen, even if you're in an argument with your partner, guys, close. Keep it in escrow. Give the buyer what they want so that, and what, and what the, the LLC has agreed to so the buyer is also not trying to sue you right for non-performance on the on your contract right so so keep that out of the buyer realm 
um, the time to distribute profits. What do you need to look out for if you are doing a deal with someone and, 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 the, and the profits went into a joint account and what, what is your partner saying the next day? What is your partner saying the very next day? No, not even show me the money. Like I need my check. I need my money wired right now. Are there things that come up after a sale? What are those things? Utility bills. Yeah, that's little, but still there, right? And sometimes an insurance refund, right? It's little, but it's still there. What's, what's one of the big thing that, that punches people in the face? Taxes. Get a little, give them a little more detailed here. Not capital gains tax. That's their own, that's their own thing. Property taxes. Get a little more detail in here. What's written into the contract and the ability to do what after the sale, not back out after the sale. If the property tax on the HUD was estimated short, right? Because they, because the new bill had not yet come out yet and the seller only contributed $5,000 and they closed mid year and they thought the taxes were going to be $10,000 for the full year. And then they got the buyer at some later point, got the tax for the full year and it turned out to be $12,000. Who's on that? Who's on the hook for that extra thousand, which is the seller's part? Yeah. So might you want to do a little hold back for that, right? And do people like the sound of that? They hate it. Partners who are not in charge of the money, but need the money really bad now is good. So is now, right? You have to temper that, right? So is it good to let that partner know, hey, listen, I know we're going to be, you know, just in advance, right? When we head to closing, like you're not going to get your funds wired out the next day, right? Uh, we've still got to wait for some of these things to come in. Now, do I feel would I do I feel comfortable paying someone like okay, here's 90% of the profits, we'll split those and we'll finish the rest over the course of whenever? Because I have been the one who has had to eat in those uh, property tax proration adjustments, and I've been the one who has received those love letters from the buyer saying what? Hey, you. Hey, according to clause, I can't remember what the clause number is. You know, it's buried deep in there, right? But by the way, I've done the, I've done the calculations and you owe me this, right? Do you ever get, do you ever get the buyer uh, calling, calling you and saying, Hey, hey, uh, the taxes are actually lower. And where do I send your check? Yeah, that's a call that you never get, uh, but just something uh, to be aware of. Ah, and then um, I get into the fun stuff, uh, personal divorce bankruptcy, death. Do these things happen? They do. Are most people not prepared for them on a partnership agreement? Yes, sadly. So, um, uh, something, and something my attorney uh, said to me, prepare for the divorce and the joint venture agreement. Now, this attorney has also been divorced four times, but I think he has some fair experience here and has probably given some good advice, right? And you, you know, you walk into it thinking, oh, this will never happen to me. Yes, I know. Until you come to me and ask me to unscramble it or come to an attorney. What do you, what, uh, lawyers' businesses are, are like, you know, like I'm getting lawyers that are cursing me out right now that are saying, why does she have to tell them this stuff? This is half of my business, unscrambling these eggs, right? I'm just trying to keep you guys out of trouble. So prepare for the divorce and the joint venture. And uh, ah, uh, this is something from um, Darren Hardy, uh, 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 former publisher of Success Magazine, 
author of The Compound Effect and The Entrepreneurial Roller Coaster, uh, which I would recommend uh, both of those books for all of you guys in here. Um, uh, one of the things that he brought up was this concept of inspect what you expect, right? Because if you just expect it and you don't inspect it, then what might happen after you kind of get to the end? It might not turn out exactly the way you plan. In fact, in his book, uh, The Compound Effect, he actually went through a story of where he lost about $150,000 uh, by giving someone money, expecting it to you know, create this business, and he did not inspect what he ex expected, and he lost that money. Now, he basically said, um, you know, this is on me. This was an expensive lesson. Do you guys think that I saved you $10,000, $20,000, $30,000, $50,000 with this tip? Some of you do. Some of you are like, no, this still won't be me. Uh, I pray it's none of you guys, but I want you guys to be prepared uh, as you go along the way. So um, as part of Texas RIA's, besides giving motivational speeches every week to get you so excited about investing in real estate, and if you guys have been to some of the sessions on investing in real estate, I'm sorry, we're all out of those. Uh, we just want to give you the, we just want to give you the real. Um, uh, we just want to give you the real because it's, and, and it comes from being a mom, right? And, and, and wanting to make sure like, you know, I see, I see the RIA members as like my kiddos and it's like, I don't want you guys to make any mistakes along the way. So, and that's how we can help you guys. Um, uh, uh, giving you more knowledge, what I call tribal knowledge, uh, sharing with you where the, you know, what I'll call the potholes are, right? Uh, uh, where you can get yourself in trouble. So uh, that, that is our tip of the week. Texas's largest real estate investor association at texasstarterkit.com. If you liked today's episode, please subscribe, comment, share with other investors, or join us directly at texasstarterkit.com.